0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy Podcast. I'm Kristen Lizenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. How are you doing today, Kristen? Are you having a good summer?
1: Is all well in the Azores?
0: Yes, I am in the midst of harvest season, which means it's hot. The greenhouse is no longer my hangout because it's (laughs) sweltering. And all I want to do is hang out at one of the swimming holes.
1: Yes, same. I'm hoping our episode today can help us cool off a bit with just
0: a little water magic. So what is it about water and magic that you want to explore today?
1: So the idea for this episode came to me in the shower, go figure, (laughs) when we were thinking about things to talk about this summer. And, you know, one of my favorite rituals at the beginning of the day or when I've had a long day outside of the apartment is to take a shower. Um, one of the saddest parts of my New York City apartment is that there's no bathtub for the switch, but turns out you don't really need one to do a cleansing ritual in the shower. So I use Teal's Lavender Epsom like, body salt wash and say to myself, that which is on me is not of me and kind of slough off the energy, so to speak. Um, and I learned this trick from fellow city witch and one of my energy healing teachers, uh, Liza Fenster. Um, she goes by Crow Mother, but I just cannot recommend it enough. So I'm really excited to talk about water as a healing modality, my favorite water fay, and how a city witch works with water. What about you?
0: I'm thinking about water folklore you know, sacred wells, water spirits, and how we can deepen our connection to this element, no matter where we live.
1: I'm excited. Let's get to it.
0: I came across a quote from writer Khalil Gibran a while back that I think is the perfect way to start this episode. It says, there must be something strangely sacred in salt. It is in our tears and in the sea.
1: I really love this quote, and it's so true. The protective nature of salt is so potent, and it is beautiful that it's in both.
0: Yes, and I truly love these words, and I feel like they're perfect as is. But I also might say that there is something strangely sacred in water. It makes up our tears and the sea. A true edit. Without sounding too cliché, I have to say that water begets life. It creates, houses, and nourishes all living things. Nothing can exist in our world without water in some form. The idea that salt water, or water in general, is sacred makes me consider how I use water in ritual, it makes me think of what's brewing in our literal and metaphorical cauldrons, and it makes me reflect on the ways in which Mother Nature shares this precious resource and life-giving element with us. The Celts viewed water, whether that be seas, rivers, lakes, what have you, as liminal spaces, which might be why there are so many myths and legends that revolve around water. Liminal spaces are something we've been talking about fairly often lately, but if you're still not quite sure what we mean, Just think of a liminal space as where magic and transformation takes place. It's an in-between realm sandwiched between this world and the other world. Liminal spaces are doorways, so to speak, and they look differently to each of us. So it only makes sense that water and magic, or at the very least, water and mystery, go hand in hand. I want to add
1: that I think that this is maybe why the weeping willow tree is so magical, right? Like it has its roots on both sides of the worlds, on shore and then also in the river. And maybe that's why in some traditions willow is seen as a doorway between worlds.
0: I love that concept. Maybe a weeping willow episode in our future because it's such a magical tree. Yes. In May, I wrote a piece for the Magic and Alchemy blog about the Rizalki, who appear in Slavic lore. The Rizalki are sort of like shape-shifting mermaids, but they have feet instead of fins. But while I was doing some research on how they appear in one folktale compared to another, it really got me thinking about sirens, water nymphs, and whatever else thrives in the depths. And the more I dug into the different water deities and spirits that exist in wells, rivers, the ocean... I started to wonder whether there was a connection between people dying in the water, whether that be dead sailors, if we're talking about the sirens, or drowned women, if we're thinking Rizalki, and their spirit being reborn. In other words, when you die in a liminal space, are you reborn as a demigod, or a monster, or some other type of non-mortal entity?
1: Mm, I love these questions, and I really loved your piece on the Rizalki.
0: Thank you, Kate. So maybe you agree with what folklore suggests, that if you die in a liminal space, you're reborn as something else. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, it's a good thing. These water spirits are wise and want to help. Off the top of my head, I think of the folktale The Horned Woman. Kate, have you heard this story? I haven't. Well, the short of it is that one day, an evil witch with a horn on her head shows up at a woman's door. She invites herself inside and starts spinning on her wheel. Soon after, she's joined by 11 other women, so there's 12 in total, all of who have horns on their head. As they continue to spin, the woman starts feeling tired and sick and realizes that she's under a spell. Luckily, the spell is temporarily broken when the witches tell the woman to make them a cake, but first she must gather water from a well with a sieve. The woman tries, but of course the water seeps out, so as she's there crying at the well, a spirit appears and tells her to fill the sieve with clay and moss to patch the holes. The spirit then tells her, when she returns home with the water, to announce three times outside the door, the mountain of the Fenian women, and the sky over it, is all on fire. When she does this, the winches jump up from their spinning wheels and flee to the mountain, which is obviously their home. And while they're gone, the woman follows more of the well-spirit's advice to set about creating her own spell to protect the home. She washes her child's feet with the sacred water and then pours it outside on the threshold. She takes the cloth that the witches have woven and wraps it around the padlock. In her absence, the witches created their own cake made from the blood of the sleeping family members, so the woman breaks up the cake and feeds it to them, restoring their life force. When the witches return, they then try everything to get the woman to let them back inside, but because of the well-spirit's wisdom, they were forced to leave and never come back, all the while cursing the well-spirit for sharing their secrets.
1: Really love a helpful (laughs) well-spirit.
0: Looking beyond the magical for a moment, wells are sacred for obvious reasons. Before modern luxuries like running water, the wells or aquifers or freshwater springs where you gathered water to cook and bathe, water your animals and garden, you know, literally everything were so important. If they dried up or got contaminated, that put your life at risk. My mother-in-law, who grew up in the house that I'm in now, long before the days of running water or bathrooms, has mentioned sacred wells to me on many occasions. Each phragsia, which is what they call the little villages here, has at least one fountain in the heart of town. Now, they're just for show, but the one in our phragsia still has water trickling from the spout, where people would go gather water for the home, and then there's a separate area where the cows or livestock could grab a drink, and a big pia or wash rock, literally the original laundromat right in the heart of town. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, I know I've mentioned before about the natural aquifer and cave that sits at the base of the mountain behind our house, which according to local folklore, houses healing water. And then further up the mountain, there's an even larger water storage slash house situation I'm sure there's a better name for it, but basically it's a huge room with stairs that even today is still filled with running water. Supposedly, this is the original water storage for the entire town, and based on the size, it might even be a couple of towns. When I was exploring that area a few weeks ago, I came across these little stone structures hidden near an overgrown picnic area, and after some investigating and asking around, I found out that the town built these structures over areas where water was bubbling up from the earth. So they're sort of like mini wells, but not built so people could gather water like I thought. They were designed to protect the water because any area where fresh water emerges from the earth is considered miracle water. Mm-hmm. When I was doing some research for this episode, I discovered that this is a popular sentiment. Seneca, a Roman philosopher who lived about 2,000 years ago, once declared, where spring rises or water flows, there we ought to build altars and offer sacrifices. It may not seem like this is something we still honor today, but then I think of all the people throwing coins into fountains, which is a tradition that survived since the old world. Making monetary offerings to water deities was common. Sometimes people also threw clothes into springs and wells. Other times it was personal items like pins or jewelry. But at the heart of it all, people were trying to appease the water spirits and invoke the healing power of water.
1: I have definitely thrown a coin into the Trevi Fountain. It's such a special place, and the history of that fountain is that it was created at the junction of three roads, which marked the terminal of the Aqua Virgo, so one of the aqueducts that supplied water to ancient Rome. And this spring, or miracle water,
0: served Rome for 400 years. Trevi Fountain might be one of the most famous sacred fountains, and Mm -hmm. it's definitely on my bucket list. Our relationship to water is really interesting. Water is a big part of who we are because we rely on it for survival, and while it has the power to heal, it can also hinder us. And maybe it's only a hindrance when we're not willing to dive in, to see what lies within. Personally, with the exception of two planets in Scorpio, my natal chart is devoid of water, I am basically all earth and fire here, and I think being born and raised in California, that sort of feels fitting, you know? It's like, yes, we have these great beaches, but hardly anybody goes in the ocean. Back then, I mainly used fresh water as an offering during ritual. Depending on the moon phase and my intentions, I might also make moon water or a crystal-infused elixir to mirror an intention or to energize my plants. But then I came to the Azores and it's like, oh yes, this is what a place looks like that is deeply connected to the element of water. And I don't just mean the Atlantic Ocean, which is all around me, but also the rain, the 95% humidity every day, (laughs) the fog, the sea storms, the dolmens with bowls carved out of the top to catch water the farmers who rely on rain instead of complicated man-made watering systems to water the fields, and of course, all the sacred wells here. Without realizing it, I had become rather disconnected from this element until recently, and now I just wonder, how did I survive without it?
1: Mm. You know, it's kind of funny. I never thought of New York City as being a city deeply connected to water as well, Like, I grew up in the land of the Great Lakes and was so used to having all of this fresh water, and, you know, as kids, we would go explore the dunes and the clay rivers at Warren and traveling to South Haven as a teenager, camping along the lake, hiking the Sleeping Bear Dunes, skinny dipping in the freezing waters of Lake Superior, (laughs) and that wasn't counting like all the small inland lakes where I would spend holidays and hot summer days with friends and family, but... When I moved to New York City, suddenly rivers were everywhere and the ocean, and I had to take bridges every day or tunnels. We would take motorcycles out to the Rockaways or to Tilden. I would take my dog to the park on the water every morning and would look at Manhattan across the river, and that's not even counting kind of the land of upstate. The Catskills are full of water and springs piped down into the city for drinking water, and the Blue Hole is a favorite of mine, but it's just so beautiful in the summer, and you can go tubing down the Esopus River, and it's just pure joy. And I think that that's, you know, one side of water to me is just sort of like deeply joyous magic.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you completely. And just hearing you talk about it just reminds me how magical it is.
1: Mm-hmm. But I think also like there's this deep level of mutual respect, like something that really struck me about Cody's relationship with water, Uh, my boyfriend is growing up on the coast in California, um, in Southern California, and how they would take like surf PE growing up. (laughs) Like I've never had this kind of relationship with the ocean. Um, I was always more of a lakes and rivers type of gal. And this is a really specific example. But learning how to work with water in a relationship of deep respect, especially from a young age, I think has so much power.
0: Yeah, and I think recognizing the differences between the mm-hmm. bodies of water, like you mentioned, is really telling. I also grew up near lakes and rivers. I think I spent the majority of my childhood and young adulthood floating around Shasta Lake at the mm. base of Mount Shasta. And it was so different than when I would cross the mountains into Humboldt to play in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And even now, when I swim in the Atlantic instead of the Pacific Ocean that I'm used to, I'm reminded how each body of water offers an entirely different experience, a new world to discover.
1: Mm -hmm. And, you know, so many stories and folklore have this sort of dual-sided nature to water, I think about the sirens in the Odyssey and how they have this sort of alluring quality to them that is also, you know, on the flip side, really about luring someone to their death. Um, and also water horses and legends like the Kelpies. So a Kelpie or a water Kelpie is a shape-shifting spirit that inhabits lakes in Scottish folklore. So Kelpies are usually described as black horse-like creatures able to adopt the human form. So some accounts state that the Kelpie retains its hooves while appearing as a human, leading to some associations with the Christian idea of Satan, um, as alluded to in Robert Burns in his poem, Addressed to the Devil. But almost every sizable body of water in Scotland has an associated Kelpie story.
0: I know that in the episode dedicated to As Above, So Below, Kate, you talked about other worlds and liminal spaces and parallel universes. You also wrote a beautiful piece on Selkies a while Thanks. back, which I love a good Selkie story. So I'm just curious your take on water and if you also see it as a portal to magic and the divine. Absolutely.
1: I think it's a portal.
0: Like, I mean, tide pools, come on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but um, I really love Selkies and the different tales around them as characters. Um Listeners, Kristen and I worked on a book of love stories for February's Tamed Wild Box, so I did a version of a Selkie story for that. But um, if you don't know, Selkies originate off the island of Orkney, and Selkie comes from the word seal, and the seal people, or Selkies, are a magical group, and so they can slip out of their seal skins and then transform into humans. So in one of the most famous tales, a fisherman steals the selkie's seal skin because he falls in love with her, and she spends her days desperate to get back to the water, but she can't find her skin. And the ocean does have this kind of longing quality to it, even as someone without a seal skin. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps one of the many appeals of a liminal space. Yes.
1: And there's this Celtic musical my sister and I used to listen to on CD called The Seal Maiden by Karen Casey, and I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, maybe just to you, Kristen, but it's a retelling of a Selkie-type love story, and the Irish singer Karen Casey uh, performs a version of the myth that inspired the film The Secret of Rowan Enish. And Casey tells and sings of a sulky, a seal maiden who sheds her skin, is trapped in a human form, marries, and then has a son. So born in the seal skin, with the ocean in his heartbeat, the little boy is kind of destined to discover his dual nature and help his mother find her long lost home too. So if you have children, or if you don't, it's like the most <laughs> fabulous thing.
0: <laughs> and it's on Spotify, people, so check it out.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I also think about the story of Melusine, who I wrote about in our Love Stories booklet. Melusine is depicted as a siren and a mermaid with a tail from the waist down, Um, and her story comes to us from French folklore, where a legend has it that Melusine and her two sisters grew up on the island of Avalon, where Morgan Le Fay, the great witch of Arthurian legend, also resided. So Malusine and um, Prince Raymond find each other one day in a forest, and like her mother taught her, she tells Raymond that he can't come into her chambers on Saturdays, um, she brings great magic to his kingdom, gives birth to like ten sons, and of course Raymond disregards her wishes and enters her chambers on a Saturday only to discover that she's half serpent and half woman. So the story goes that Melusine forgives Raymond, only to hear him calling her a serpent woman behind her back. You know, classic male <laughs> move here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and at this moment, she transforms into a dragon and flies away. So iconic. And you may recognize her from the Starbucks cup, actually. A fun fact.
0: It's funny, I studied Melusine during college in one of my French lit classes, and I remember everyone sharing their opinion on why and how Melusine ended up as part of the Starbucks logo. I think the verdict is still out, but Mm. back then the consensus was Melusine was a good luck charm. But now that I know more about the goddess and her connection to the serpent and transformation, I might need to revisit that hypothesis.
1: I'm gonna have to think on that too. But mm-hmm. I could go on forever about this, so just stop me. But um, when I was young, I was really obsessed with the Germanic myths of Undyne. The term Undyne first appears in the alchemical writings of Paracelsus, a Renaissance alchemist and physician. Undying derives from the Latin word unda, meaning wave, and first appears in his book, uh, a book on nymphs, uh, sylphs, pygmies, and salamanders, and other spirits, and this was published in 1566. I had so many books and notes that I would scribble in my journal about elementals and would always be searching for salamanders when I was in the woods. There's this book series that I'll have to find that taught me all about these sorts of spirits when I was younger that I couldn't find while Googling, so I'm going to have to send my mom to the attic, so TBD (laughs) on that. Um... Another favorite water magic being for me is um, a water fairy or a water Nixie. So there's a grim fairy tale about a Nixie that lives at the bottom of a well, but I imagine that they're present at other bodies of water too. You know, the liminal spaces that you're speaking about, streams, rivers, and springs. And I think it's always just a good idea to leave a little offering while you pass through like dried rose petals, a piece of hair, or some dried mugwort to say hello.
0: Yeah, and I think even just greeting them and introducing yourself is such a kind gesture, Mm. you know, recognizing their existence. Mm -hmm. In my experience, when you start a conversation, spirits have a lot to say. It's true. But,
1: you know, like I mentioned earlier, to work with water, you don't have to be in a woodland sitting next to a spring, even though that can be wonderful. Like, you can perform shower rituals, like the one I mentioned earlier. You can hang eucalyptus in your shower to work plant magic. Without a bath, one of my most favorite rituals to do is a foot bath, so I pick herbs like lavender and calendula, um, shave slices of ginger, rose petals, and I boil water, letting it cool down first and then doing a foot soak. I also think that you know watering houseplants is a form of water magic. Um, collecting rainwater for your altar in a jar or a dish is magic. And you know, I took the ferry to Governor's Island on Sunday in the rain to go look at some art, and it was truly magical. So just being out for a walk on a rainy day is a little bit of water magic. And there are just so many wonderful ways to work with this element. So, Kristen, if someone is feeling like they would like to deepen their connection to water, what would you suggest?
0: Well, I love all the suggestions you just made. I think daily magic is the way to go if we're looking to enchant our lives. Mm -hmm. But I would also encourage people, when possible, to fully submerge themselves in water every now and then and take note of how that makes you feel. If it's the ocean, great, or a lake, a pool, a sensory deprivation tank, if you'd like, or a bathtub even, because ceremonial baths are some of the most beautiful rituals. And if you're like me and Kate, who do not yet have the tub of our dreams, get a kiddie pool and fill it with water. If you feel inclined, add flower petals or a bit of moon water saved from the solstice or equinox. I promise you that prepping a kiddie pool is only going to feel ridiculous until you get in.
1: Facts, Um, yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And as with any ritual, but maybe more so when we're working with an element that has been a bit absent or dormant in our life having a pen and paper handy in case this connection triggers some memories or emotions that are worth remembering is really helpful.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at K8Baloo and at EastAndAlchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog magicandalchemy.com.
0: We'll be back mid-September with weekly episodes just in time for the Season of the Witch. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be, or something better. Until next time.